This morning, I invite you to join me in your copy of the Holy Scripture, Genesis chapter number 45 this morning, Genesis 45. It was during the middle of the 20th century that millions of gallons of radioactive atomic waste were being stored in huge underground tanks outside a small town in Washington state. The storage tanks had a life expectancy of 20 to 30 years. The radioactive atomic waste stored in those tanks, it will remain deadly for 600 years. And so I ask who in their right mind thought it was a good idea to, to permanently store toxic waste in temporary holding tanks? And of course the answer is probably a government agency, right? And so they did that thing. But perhaps in the very same way, many times we store up anger and resentment and bitterness in the temporary storage tanks of our own hearts and minds. And inevitably in time, that poison leaks out. That toxin breaks out and many people around are infected. In Hebrews 12, verse 15, the Bible says, Be careful, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, for by it many become defiled. And folks, the years that Joseph spent apart from his family in slavery, in prison in Egypt, could have been years storing up bitterness and resentment over the injustices that he suffered. His, his brothers betrayed him and ruined his life. And Joseph could have held a spirit of bitterness in the underground tank of his heart till it burst forth with anger and revenge, but that wasn't the case for Joseph. Because Joseph recognized the sovereign hand of God in his sufferings, he was able to forgive his brothers for what they had done to them and, and to him, and, and that is my proposition this morning, printed there at the top of your notes. Because of the sovereignty of God and the sufferings of men, we can and we must forgive one another. From Genesis 45, I've prepared a message titled, A Speech to the Speechless. Let's pause for prayer quickly. Lord God, thank you for the moments we've already spent together this morning celebrating the advent, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, remembering the sacrifice, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so grateful for Jesus Christ. Lord, now as we turn our attention to the Old Testament scriptures and continue in the life biography of Joseph, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us the example that Joseph gives to us, example of forgiveness, toward those who have wronged us. We pray that your Holy Spirit might not just teach us, but might change us because of our study. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The notes that I've given you this morning will serve not as an outline of this chapter, but rather as a conclusion to our study. And so I would invite you to set your notes aside just for a few moments, give, give your attention to the text, and we'll return to those notes at the conclusion of our study, Genesis 45, verse number one, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud 
and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Previously, when Joseph's emotions got the best of him, he wanted to be alone by himself in private. He left his brother's presence. In fact, back in chapter 43, verse 30, the Bible tells us that Joseph dismissed himself, went into his chamber, and he wept there. But now in chapter 45, verses 1 and 2, Joseph dismissed his attendants from the room so that he could weep with his brothers. And I believe there's good reason why Joseph wanted those moments with his brothers alone. First, this was a family matter. And spectators couldn't contribute to what needed to be said or, or what needed to be done in that moment in watching the drama. And, and I can appreciate that sometimes a family might invite a pastor, for example, to, to meet with a family, to participate, to mediate, to counsel through a difficult matter. However, there are other times a family needs to meet alone and have a family chat alone without any other spectators. I also think that Joseph didn't want his transparency and his vulnerability to trouble his attendants or undermine his professional relationship with them. And of course, verse number two tells us that all the house of Pharaoh heard through the door what was happening anyway. So maybe that was uh, a futile attempt, but, but perhaps that's what motivated Joseph. But then third and, and finally, Joseph needed to, to, to have a private moment with his brothers for the proof of Joseph's identity to his brothers was not that he could speak his brother's language or that he could recount some of the shared life experience that they had as children growing up with their father Jacob, but the, the proof of Joseph's identity to his brothers was his circumcision, something exclusive to Joseph and his brothers, and in that way he needed to make himself known to them, verse number, verse number two. So in verse number three, so he dismissed his staff. Look at what happened in verse three. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And I've titled my message, A Speech to the Speechless, because the brothers were so stunned, they could not answer, verse number three. The word dismayed means to inwardly tremble and be alarmed. And now every word from verses 3 through 15 is a speech given by Joseph as the brothers are are stunned in silence. And when Joseph dismissed his attendants and servants in verse number one, the, the brothers here now are fearful that this powerful Egyptian potentate might do something to them. However, Joseph reveals himself to them as their brother, and he, he blurts out, I am Joseph. And their dismay left them absolutely speechless as new waves of anxiety flooded their minds and their hearts. Terror gripped their hearts. They had nothing to say. But while they were speechless, I don't think they were paralyzed. Rather, I think they instinctively, intuitively shrank back away from Joseph, realizing the threat he, he presented to them. And for that reason, Joseph had to invite them closer. Verse number four, then, and, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near, then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Can you imagine the surprise and the horror of the brothers? But then in verses 5 and following, Joseph spoke words of encouragement in which he explained to them that their sin against him did not thwart the purposes of God. There in verse number 5, Joseph says, you sold me 
But then he said, God sent me. Look at verse number five. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And folks, there was purpose among the brothers to destroy Joseph. But God's purpose was to save. God's sovereign purpose in Joseph's suffering was to save. It's the very picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 2 verse 23. He was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was God's sovereign purpose to crush Jesus as we've even reflected on this morning. But Jesus was taken by lawless hands, crucified and put to death. And so it is that men will do all sorts of wrong things for the wrong reasons, but God in his sovereignty can use evil to accomplish his purposes. In fact, Psalm 76 verse 10 says that even the wrath of men shall praise the Lord. And we know that there's famine in the land. It's been in the land for two years. There are five years remaining yet to total seven years of famine. Look at verse number five and six. Verse five again. Now, therefore, do not be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there shall be neither plowing nor harvesting. So Joseph, knowing the purposes of God, he invites his, his brothers uh, to, to bring their father and move with him to, to Egypt. Verse number seven, and God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you and the earth. You need to underscore verse number seven is maybe the heart of all of this. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you and the earth, the Jacob family, the, the children of Israel and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it is not you who sent me here, but God, you might underscore that as well. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have. Therefore, I will provide for you lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is in my mouth that speaks to you. This is my speech so that you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and that all that you have seen and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Folks, this is a remarkable reunion. There is a remarkable reconciliation. There is a remarkable restoration that's happening here. And this account is recorded for us in the pages of scripture by the divine author so that we might learn something. Romans 15.4 tells us that the things that were written before in the scripture have been written for our learning. What lesson does this teach us? The things that were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so folks, this morning I submit to you a point of comfort and hope. God's will is being worked out through your suffering and in your mind just now, you are identifying some injustice, some hardship, 
some suffering, some betrayal, some hurt that you are suffering, but know that God is at work. This is the testimony of Joseph. The least of which here is not that God's prophetic promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 was that Israel would serve in Egypt for 400 years and then be brought out with a mighty hand. And this is how God was working to get the children of Israel to Egypt. But unbeknownst to Joseph and his brothers, God's will is being worked out through this family in greater ways than they could ever imagine. You say, well, I'm not entirely convinced. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 16. Verse 16, now the report of it was heard in the Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals, depart, go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father, your household, and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. I am convinced... Well, I, I find it fascinating that the Pharaoh was, was so pleased um, with Joseph to invite all of his entire family to, to move to Egypt. Why would the Pharaoh of Egypt do that? And why would he be pleased? And, and I'm convinced in, in this way. First, Pharaoh so respected Joseph, was so grateful for Joseph's work that Joseph had interpreted his dreams and saved his kingdom from ruin. And, and Joseph had the whole world looking to Egypt for famine relief. So anything that pleased Joseph would please the Pharaoh. But then there's a, a second insight. I believe that Joseph never told Pharaoh about his dreams and his brothers and the betrayal and selling him as a slave. And I believe that Pharaoh assumed Joseph had simply found his long-lost brothers after so many years. How exciting is this? A happy day for everyone involved that it was just a random coincidence in this joyous reunion. And I believe that Joseph never complained to the Pharaoh about the injustice he suffered at the hand of his brothers. So Pharaoh had no negative impressions uh, to, to overcome. Pharaoh was able to receive these people objectively and with sincerity. Now, I was convicted a bit in my spirit this, this past week in, in meditating on these things that many times we, which means I, many times I complain about others. I might even criticize or slander another Pre creating a preconceived idea about that other in the minds of those that hear me. Bending another's disposition against another. I've been guilty of that, and I am sorry. You have been guilty of that. And I hope that the Spirit of God, the Word of God, convicts you as well. But we do a disservice to ourselves. We do a disservice to one another with our slander about others. Now, sure, Joseph could have told the Pharaoh the truth. The cold, hard facts. You know what, Pharaoh? My brothers are wicked men. My brothers are wretches. My brothers can't be trusted. My brothers betrayed me. They stabbed me in the back. If my brothers ever cross our border into our country, they need to be immediately incarcerated for the rest of their lives. But yet the Bible says here that Pharaoh was pleased with Joseph, and he was pleased to invite Joseph's family to move to Egypt receiving them well rather than being 
suspicious of, uh, of them, and, and that's very profound to me. And one of the reasons that I'm convinced in this way that Joseph was free from bitterness and resentment is because after 20 years, nothing had leaked out to Pharaoh regarding the crimes of his brothers. Look at verse 21. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph came, gave them carts according to the command of the Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garment. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent them to his father, these things, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, food for his father for the journey. So they, he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is the governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, which Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And that's the reading of the scripture of, the, of this account, and it's self-explanatory, and even in your mind's eye, we can picture these events. But I want to take the balance of our time this morning to address the matter of forgiveness in a topical manner. My premise, because the sovereignty of God in the sufferings of men, Joseph was able to forgive his brothers for the wrongs they committed against him, and we should do the same. And so from the example of Joseph, allow me to give you, just briefly, six principles of forgiveness for you to remember. Number one, principles of forgiveness. Number one, biblical forgiveness should be granted quickly. Biblical forgiveness should be granted quickly. And you say, but Joseph didn't forgive his brothers for years, not until Genesis 45. No, actually, I believe that Joseph forgave his brothers early on. Genesis 45 is the first time he was able to publicly express it to his brothers. But I am not convinced that Joseph harbored for 20 years that bitter, toxic waste in the temporary storage tank of his heart and his mind. In the New Testament, we are told to forgive others quickly. Ephesians 4.26, I haven't given you the references, but write these in the margin. Ephesians 4.26 tells us to not let the sun go down on our wrath. Matthew 5 verse 25 tells us that there is a dispute between one and us and another. We must settle the matter quickly is how the NIV reads. Matthew 5.25. And the longer we wait, the harder it becomes because the harder we become. And some of you might say, but pastor, I won't forgive them until you fill in the blank. Because they hurt me so badly. So until they, I won't forgive them. Know that your harbored hurt will destroy you. So biblical forgiveness should be granted quickly. Secondly, biblical forgiveness should be granted privately. There's great wisdom, I think, in Joseph addressing his brothers privately. His attendants and his servants didn't need to learn all of the dirt about the Joseph family. And there was a lot of dirt in the Joseph family. There's a lot of dirt in your family, my family, extended family, I'm sure. But this was a private matter. 
Some scripture references, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Matthew 18, verse 15. Another, Proverbs 17, verse 9. Proverbs 17, verse 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. So it should be done privately. Third, biblical forgiveness should be granted unconditionally. Forgiveness never says, I will forgive you if you meet these certain conditions for me. There are no strings attached with biblical forgiveness. Now, restitution may be a necessary demand of justice. But it's not a necessary demand for forgiveness. I hope you understand the difference between granting forgiveness and restitution happening or or not happening. I've counseled many over the years who've refused to extend forgiveness until that one sees repentance demonstrated or proven or until restoration is made. The fruits of repentance might be necessary for reconciliation and restoration, but not for forgiveness. So unconditionally, no strings attached. Number four, biblical forgiveness should be granted sacrificially. The price of Joseph's forgiveness was 20 years of separation from his father and from his family. The price of Joseph's forgiveness included slavery and a prison sentence. And Joseph could have rightly said, you ruined my life for 20 years. But we understand that when a banker forgives a loan, it means that the borrower doesn't have to repay the loan or the debt to the banker. Okay, then who pays the debt? The banker does. The banker suffers the loss. That is the sacrifice or the price that he pays. If I go to your house, perhaps you invite our family over for for dinner and we enjoy an evening together around the table and in my clumsy manner, I I knock over a glass vase and it, it falls and it breaks in your home. And I say, I am so sorry, that was an accident. Um, I, what, what can I do? And you say, don't worry about it. Um, I forgive you. It's okay. Who suffers the loss there? You suffer the loss. It was your vase that was broken. And so it is that forgiveness is something that costs us something. Sacrificially, pictured by Jesus Christ on the cross. For him to forgive us, he gave his life. Number five, biblical forgiveness should be granted permanently. And just as conditions for forgiveness cannot be demanded before forgiveness is granted, neither can conditions for forgiveness be demanded for the forgiveness to remain in effect. Now, turn quickly with me to chapter 50, just a couple pages away. Chapter 50, we read of the fear of Joseph's brothers that Joseph's forgiveness would not be permanent. Chapter 50, we'll get there in a few weeks, perhaps after Christmas. Chapter 15, I'm sorry, 50. Chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us. Chapter 50, verse 15 Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So their fear, their expectation was that Joseph would renege on his forgiveness. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sins for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
The brothers went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So I would say to you that biblical forgiveness is something that's granted permanently. For that's the way that God's forgiveness toward us is. God declared in Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Number six, biblical forgiveness seeks restoration and reconciliation. Folks, the sweet fruit of forgiveness is reconciliation, restoration, but it isn't always possible. In this case, Joseph's brothers demonstrated contrition and repentance over their sin. They welcomed Joseph's kindness to them um, to the degree that the whole family was able to get back together again after 20 years. However, sometimes the offending party has no interest in that type of arrangement or the offended party. At some point, there is nothing you can do to main, other than maintain a, a spirit of disposition toward restoration. So don't conflate forgiveness and restoration or reconciliation, but always be seeking that and always desire that. And I, I think this was pictured in the parable of the prodigal son. The unconditional love of the father who is waiting and waiting and wanting for his son to come home. However, the, the confrontation, the correction of an erring brother should always be with a mind of restoration. A few final thoughts for us and we can be done. What would motivate us for this? You say, Pastor, I get it, right? I understand these things. This is a great Bible example of this, but I just lack the want to, which is really how we all live, right? I just, I'm not in the mood. I don't want to do this. What would motivate us to forgive those who have wronged us, number one, we are commanded to forgive. Simple, straightforward, we must obey God's command. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 tells us to forgive one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Another scripture, Colossians 3, 12 to 17, tells us to forgive one another, even as Christ forgave us. And folks, we have no other choice if we claim the forgiveness of, of God through Jesus Christ on the cross, we have no other option than to obey his command to forgive as he's forgiven us. Secondly, we have been forgiven a sin debt that we cannot repay. And I'd point you to Matthew 18 where Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving servant who had been forgiven a great debt. Or I'm sorry, a, a great debt, but would not forgive his fellow servant a small debt. Also, Jesus' teaching in Luke 7, where Jesus told a story of a, a creditor who had two debtors, and one owed a small debt, the other owed a great debt. The creditor forgave them both, and Jesus asked, who loved the creditor more? And the natural answer is, well, the one who was forgiven the most. And so, folks, if, if we understand the unpayable sin debt that we have been forgiven, if we understand how much God has forgiven us, it is absurd that we don't forgive each other the petty offenses that occur between us um, on, a, on a regular basis because God has forgiven us. You say, Pastor, you don't know what that other one did to me. Okay, I don't know what that other one did to you. But I'll answer, you don't know what you did to God. 
You violated a holy God. You disobeyed and rebelled against a holy God. And he forgave you. So it's actually a little hollow and shallow for you to contend that you don't know what they did against me. We've been forgiven a sin debt we cannot pay. How about this one? From the Joseph narratives, this is the big idea. God is sovereign over the offenses we suffer. God is sovereign. This is the the thematic high point of Joseph's life story. And there's great comfort in the midst of our suffering. Even when people wrong us, and they do, I have been wronged by some of you. I have wronged some of you. I am sorry. Life experience is suffering injustice and evil and wickedness. But God is sovereign over those offenses so that even when people wrong us, God is at work. And so in the midst of this, we can accept our, the, the injustice with confidence that God's purposes will be accomplished. Joseph says, yeah, you, you sold me into slavery. But you know what? God is the one who sent me here. And then finally, if we lack motivation, number four, Jesus modeled forgiveness for us to follow. Jesus is always our example. What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He forgave. As I was this morning participating, partaking of the elements, the the bread and the cup, I, I was reminded as Jesus hung on the cross, One of the sayings of Jesus from the cross is, Father, forgive them. And so we ought to forgive one another. I don't know where you're at this morning, and I don't fully pretend to to, to appreciate. I I don't appreciate fully the injustice or the wrong that you've suffered. However, I want you to have the liberty of spirit that can only come as you forgive others their trespasses against you, just as Jesus has forgiven us. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we are mindful this morning of our sin debt, the sin, the great sin load that is ours. And yet you in your mercy and in your grace have forgiven us. And Lord, no matter how great our sin is, your mercy is more. And we're grateful for that. We thank you for that. And Lord, it motivates us to forgive one another. Thank you for the life of Joseph, Lord, and his spirit of forgiveness because he trusted in your sovereignty. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.